Hi, Soumya. Welcome to Network Capital. I'm thrilled to be hosting you. Um, you've had an adventurous career, a very interesting one, and uh, you've written a fascinating new book that I enjoyed reading very much, uh, Divorce and Democracy. But uh, before we get to that, could you tell us a bit about uh, who you are and what do you do? Um, thank you, Utkarj, for thinking of me for this uh, session. And uh, I'm really glad you've got your hands on the book already. Um, what I do is, uh, I mean, I hope it's adventurous, but I'm actually a postdoctoral fellow at uh, Cambridge. And um, I'm funded by the British Academy. This is uh, like I, I'm an early career fellow. So I think, you know, just kind of at the start of my career, I would think. But um, before then, it's been it's been pretty straightforward. I went to Delhi University and then I did a master's at Oxford and then my PhD at Cambridge. And uh, then I did take a little bit of a detour from academia and policy. And I was consulting with the Law Commission of India for two years. This was the 21st Law Commission and uh, they had a mandate which was actually, you know, surprisingly close to my research, which was on uh, family law. I'm a legal historian by training. And I worked with them for a couple of years till the end of the 21st Commission. And then older and wiser, I came back to academia and I, I quite like my journey back. And yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. You know, Cambridge is an exciting place these days. Uh, are you a Jesus College or do you know a bit about the Jesus College? Yes, I am at Jesus College. That is the okay. college I'm associated so Do you want to uh, tell us a bit about what's going on non-academic stuff? You know, a lot of us are millennials and Gen Z, so it helps to know what's on the ground. I think the most, you know, recent concern for the college is that we've lost a, a college copper horse. And this horse was kind of very, you know, nicely situated in the center of one of the quads in Jesus. And we've not been able to find it. The police are involved. So this is not a hoax of, of any sort. At least that's what we know from the multiple email threads that are going around. But we are really hoping to have our horse back, you know. Uh, Cambridge yeah. and Oxford, as you would know, does really care about, you know, its legacy. And this uh, horse was very much a part of, you know, Jesus College. So we do miss it. Yeah, I've actually, I was in Cambridge a few weeks back and uh, I, uh, you know, I'm just uh, surprised and, you know, pleasantly, I don't have words to describe how somebody could take a horse from where it was kept. And how and, large uh, it was. And how large it was. But uh, yeah, I hope, uh, you know, you all find it soon. <laughs> but enough, um, enough uh, of uh, the horse. Tell us a bit about uh, how you discovered your area of interest. That's something that uh, on Network Cable, many of our students uh, struggle to find out. In fact, we have like um, a micro degree called I don't know what I want to do with my life. And lots of people enroll. The key question, it's hard to figure out. How did you figure out where you wanted to focus? Um, I think it, uh, you know, uh, I didn't actually take too many breaks in, you know, in my studies to actually pause and think about it. So I think it just happened 
pretty much you know on its own but i don't regret it at all because it uh, it was something i started think of thinking about probably when you know i started my undergrad at uh, hindu college and that's when you know uh, i was doing political science and gender history was and you know uh, studying gender and women in political process was actually very much a part of our curriculum i did not think that that would just become so central to my life but um, that's just studying gender was not a thread i could ever abandon so so you know i kind of went on to uh, in oxford my research was actually on uh, women in the informal sector and how the new economic policy of uh, you know 1991 impacted employment of women so that's kind of where it started and that got me thinking about what happens to uh, you know the women workforce after they get married because you know i mean there are certain studies that show you that a lot of women opt out of employment but there are also you know migration stories about how women sort of move from one place to the other because of marriage and then ended up getting employed locally and that got me actually much more interested in marriage because you know um there were all of these strange arrangements one you know finds out that they're taking place locally for instance there is you know maitri karar which is a form of marriage that operates in rajasthan which is kind of like a temporary marriage then there is you know the leverage system which still happens despite codification of hindu law so it really got me thinking you know what are the limits of law and how all of these Customs kind of continue to prevail even after we, you know, codified our laws, so to say. And um, that's when it started, and it was only at the end of my PhD that suddenly, you know, uh, the whole country seemed to be talking about triple talaq by the Lord. So, so far as the book is concerned, my immediate prompt for writing it was because it seemed like such an opportune moment to, you know, historicize the issue of Muslim personal law and of triple talaq because it was. the entire you know the press and politics of the country were preoccupied by it and uh, then it became kind of almost inevitable for me to sort of opt out of that subject and i kind of stayed on and then uh, i also think it's the gender expectation of a history phd to ultimately publish their work but hmm. for me i think you know the, the immediate prompt and the rush was because of the context you know informing uh, indian politics at the time this is around 2016 17 when i first started converting my phd into a book quite a few years you know i mean it, it's come out really well so let's see so political science is hindu then you go on to do area studies at oxford and then you move to history in cambridge and then you start you know figuring out oh i might want to focus here and then you publish the book so clearly you've been able to connect the dots uh, um when you look back what are some threads one is gender clearly the other is law are there other things that you were observing um that helped you figure this question out of where you want to focus and why yeah you know um i've always had an interest in policy so it seemed like you know if you're uh, it just seemed like a very you know difficult space space to navigate because academia and policy can very often be very incompatible i say that because you know in policy it requires a certain degree of generalization which is what let's say i was you know looking at in my oxford degree about how new economic policy really panned out what it meant for women and so on and so forth but actually in academia what you do is you know it's very anti generalizations because what you're doing especially as a legal historian what i'm doing is looking at 
policy failures, micro impacts of policy. I'm also looking at, for instance, um, unintended consequences of law and policy, right? So it was, you know, um, on the one hand, you know, there is this commitment, almost the activist, you know, in you, which I think, you know, most women now would sort of relate with and have opinions on, you know, there is almost, you know, an incompatibility between academia and activism. But at the same time, we all have a commitment. Uh, I mean, everyone who's an academic also has certain, you know, social meanings, certain social, you know, commitments and ideas that, you know, you, uh, you know, you value. And uh, as a consequence of that, I ended up, you know, taking a lot of such detours. I was very, very uh, fortunate to, you know, work with the Varma Commission. This was immediately after the aftermath of the, you know, Delhi Gangway. And there I worked predominantly with lawyers. I was the only non-lawyer in that commission. And that really gave me, you know, some perspective because, you know, I was quite young then, but working with people who were incredible in their fields. And we were trying to come up with, you know, with a law, which was the 2013 amendment. And at the same time, we were looking at all of these academic studies, which were telling us that, you know, there are limits to law. It may not actually work. You know, this is not how, you know, you, uh, you discourage violence against women in society and so on and so forth so i mean for me it was a, a bit of a you know a difficult call but i do think my academic interests almost always tend to you know inform or align with policy and um in the law commission i did feel i mean i don't know how much detail you would like me to go into but i did feel this great need to historicize a lot of the discussions we were having then and uh, one of the obvious kind of examples was that, you know, when we were discussing the whole issue of Muslim personal law, not only does one notice a lot of misinformation in the press about it, about, you know, for instance, there are notions about how abandonment through triple talaq is only an exclusively, you know, Muslim problem, which was truly not the case, you know, it was happening under all religious denominations. And, um, you know, there was also misinformation about the fact that, you know, uniform civil code or codification of personal law is something that we're discussing for the first time, you know, post, you know, in, in 2016, 17, and that period when the Shaira Banu case came to be. So um, actually in my research, one of my favorite chapters of the book does talk about how this moment in India actually happened in the 60s. And it was not just in India, it was actually a global focus on family law reform. It was triggered by a United Nations conference that happened in 1962 in Tokyo. This was followed by you know, the American Senate looking at rehabilitative alimony in divorce. It was followed by Canada, we started to look at formal equality between spouses. In India and in Britain, we had divorce, divorce reform bills in 1969. So actually, you know, the need to historicize a lot of the current discussions made me feel like, no, there are actually real linkages between what we learn and what we study. And it, it, it can have a conversation with the law and policy that is actually being created. So um, I'm not sure that quite, you know, answers your questions of question about my own trajectory, but a lot of it was guided by events around me, is what I'm trying to say. And then I ended up digging deeper, which historians do, because we, we essentially look at archives. So I would look at the problem, which is very real to me, which is right in front of my eyes. And then I would look back at the history of what's going on and my methodology was historical but a lot of the consequences and conversations I ended up having were about you know um, what what policy would look like and you know I mean what the position of women really is in this conversation around personal law. Fascinating one has to connect the dots uh, in different ways right um, 
can you start with the basics tell us what is a marriage and what is a divorce okay so uh marriage i oh gosh there is no you know sort of uh, very graceful way to say it but marriage legally i do see it as an institution that is essentially patriarchal but the conversations around marriage i also say that because you know i'm looking at this from the perspective of the state so i mine is not a sociological study mine is a legal historical study which is why a lot of the perspective that i'm bringing in this book is about what is going on in the institutions of the state and institutions of the state are not just you know this some abstract will of the state but actually informed by people manning it now i say that because the state tended to view marriage as something that would benefit society that would protect women that would you know uh, inform the ideal notion of what a family is and that is why the book is called divorce and democracy because a lot of the social movements which were opposing laws around marriage and a lot of religious movements even which were speaking about you know divorce forms of divorces permitted within religion were essentially having this conversation with the state about secularism about constitutional values but on literally the canvas of a woman right like should women get access to rights should women get access to certain kinds of divorce and therefore divorce becomes an interesting lens through which you can study indian democracy i'm not right, saying right. this would be how one would describe you know divorce as simply you know i mean i'm sure sociologically it's it's traumatic for people it's also important for people because historically women have fought for this right you know to exit you know uh, troublesome marriages to exit violent marriages so it's not just a conversation simply about you know two people and the state trying to intervene in it but it's actually a conversation about rights about secularism about constitution about literally almost every significant legal and constitutional discourse that informs the latter half of the 20th century so post independence at least from where i see it marriage and divorce became really significant for nation building and for constitutional values um if i explain that a little bit more i say you know nation building because the hindu code bill let's take that for an example which is where you know the book really begins is about you know not just codifying marriage but also granting divorce rights to women now uh, what was interesting to for me in this conversation was that the chief stakeholders in this debate which are let's say hindu women they did not have adequate space in you know uh, in parliament to actually be speaking about it right and uh, the few voices that i do record of women are actually very interesting you know to give you an example at one point uh, there's a woman parliamentarian who gets up and says you know why are all in all men in parliament so afraid of the idea of divorce do they think they've all been bad husbands such that you know whenever we introduce the clause into the into the hindu marriages act there's going to be suddenly filing divorces right and men on the other hand are opposing it not because they think that you know it will lead to their own marriages falling apart but they make a civilizational argument so that is when you know i mean that's how i i'm trying to answer your question because you know marriage is not simply ever when it's in discussion in parliament about the union of two people which is how i would have described it if i were just to simply tell you what i think of marriage right it's not just about companionship it was actually about how it is civilizationally superior to be in this you know sort of a 
marital relationship which will give protection to women and to homes and to so on and so forth right so a lot of these discussions then become really interesting because uh, you know women in parliament are trying to negotiate it but it's still sort of within the discourse of tradition so they're they're seeking rights but in a lot of ways what hindu court bill guarantees is rights to what it recognizes as an honorable woman subject so women who for instance i say this because you know after hindu court bill they debated the special marriages act and in the special marriages act it's interesting because in parliament they only spoke of it as though it's an act that nobody will really use because you know why would you marry without the consent of your parents why would anyone marry outside of their religion interfaith marriages came with so much baggage in 1950s and i i mean they do till date now more so than any other time but uh, the special marriages act which is now being looked at as you know a potential template for a uniform civil code was actually deeply contentious back in the day and it wasn't necessarily looked at as an enabling legislation which would allow two people to come together but it was actually looked at as a legislation for people who did not conform who did not listen to their parents so at one point uh, you know there is one of the parliamentarians who gets up and says that you know who do you think is going to use this act it's only going to be used by lipstick wearing butterflies so a lot of the you know conversation that takes place in parliament is you know is is this this i mean this is the kind of rhetoric that's informing it and for me then you know extrapolating these ideas becomes really interesting because then divorce and the negotiation of divorce becomes one of the chief ways through which you can see democracy and that is why i've called it divorce and democracy because one can say if state loves a marriage democracy loves a divorce because it is almost always entailed negotiations between groups and it will never be about two people as we think it is you know which is just simply right. that's a very normal part, but an important one I was about to ask you how you named the book, but you you weave that in here. Tell me, um, when you when you look at the debates in the parliament, have there been some women uh, who've been saying or protesting about this discussion, the way the state has been handling it? Uh, have there been some comparisons that you've pointed to in the book today or way back in the fifties? Uh, would love to get your thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you ask this question because I find that some of the most you know uh, provocative and some of the bolder voices in Parliament received a lot of you know brutal shunning. And uh, I'll take one example from 1950s, which is when the Hindu Court Bill is being debated, and another from 80s, which is when uh, Muslim women's right to uh, protection of rights on divorce act is being debated. So in the Hindu Court Bill, it was uh, Subhadra Joshi who actually you know uh, makes a comparison between the institution of marriage and that of prostitution. and she says it in a context you know it's not without context so she says that look the idea that you know divorce shouldn't exist basically means that women will be forced to stay in marriages and being forced to stay in a relationship where you're bound and you have to be sexually compliant is akin to prostitution it's not something that people are voluntarily opting into now this discussion i had the hardest time finding it because it was censored in parliamentary debates it was literally you know written off and it was expunged from parliament it you know it's a, it's an important thing to remember because right now i think parliament is again kind of released a bunch of words that can't right. be used so um back in the day this was a problem you know comparing the institution of marriage 
to you know prostitution even to highlight the simple point that you know we don't want women to stay in bonded marriages in, enraged like a lot of people and it you know her her entire point was kind of lost in the prostitution comment and then she never comes back from it so that voice for me was really important and uh, similarly you know um, it was uh, i think uh, i forget the name now but i think it was one of the parliamentarians who spoke up when the shahbano case was being debated in right. uh, you know in 1985 and she gets up and says that you know you're talking about maintenance and you're talking about maintenance as though it's it's like the most important part that you're negotiating but actually you know the point of you know an easy divorce which is permitted within islam is to be able to exit a marriage which is difficult and sometimes what women want is not any you know financial relationship with their husband so what they want is a one time settlement and an alimony and not a lifelong maintenance so i mean i'm i'm saying this to illustrate the basic point that you know notions that we usually associate with progress such as you know or we provide maintenance which is lifelong and so on and so forth women's demands can often be very you know different from it so this resonance i felt even more so in the law commission because you know on the one hand there was a lot of you know of course state pressures to even though law commission is supposed to be an academic scholarly body which comes up with the critique of law and policy there were pressures to look at you know the feasibility of a uniform civil code and a lot of uh, the consultations that we held actually told us that women weren't necessarily looking for uniformity that was not like the end goal of their activism at all what they were looking for was actually you know better rights within a marriage which need not have been guaranteed through a uniform civil code so i'll give you just uh, you know one example of this um we had a woman who you know uh, you know we had many letters come in to the law commission of india and uh, one of these letters seemed to suggest that you know uh, it was a very personalized note about how uh, this woman's husband she feared was about to enter into a bigger relationship she said you should quickly ban bigamy and uh, and therefore you know like you know prevent this from happening so there is a demand of state intervention but totally not in the language of what we ultimately got which was you know the muslim marriage protection of rights on marriage bill 2019 which basically criminalizes the pronunciation of uh, of triple talaq but doesn't address the issue of abandonment in as much right so perhaps uh, you know a, a greater hashing out of the domestic violence act which looks at abandonment abandonment of wives more specifically would go you know a long way in addressing you know the the demands so the difference between paper and practice the difference between you know demand and decision is you know what became really apparent to me once you know we began consultations with women and so on and so forth so to that extent i do think there are you know there are these moments where you recognize that you know uh, there are few really important voices that are increasingly getting silenced because we have uh, larger narratives that inform us about you know um, how 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 important it is for a state to protect marriage and if this time there is one more example that just came to mind that i would uh, like to go into because i've been talking so far about how litigants or how people respond to the state but i even encountered some interesting evidence about how different provinces like different state governments disagree with each other and the most interesting example for me uh, was when the then madras government you know before it became tamil nadu so in the 1960s the madras government is trying to 
negotiate with the center and say that you know we want recognition for suya maryathai weddings which are really simple priestless casteless weddings right and the center strangely enough writes back to the madras government says but you know how can you have a marriage which is not lavish which is without ceremony and which doesn't have a lot of witnesses and i think it was interesting for me because the whole idea of this priestless marriage was to do away with ritual but actually you know uh, you know our notions of marriage constantly keep evolving in these negotiations which is why even when you know people say that law is meant to be this tool which is predominantly for surveillance the book kind of looks at the various instances where state governments disagree where law commission disagrees with center where court disagrees with parliament so there's a lot of disagreement even within state institutions and that's the kind of dynamic that i'm trying to capture that it's actually not in one voice that you know anyone speaking and it is the impermanence of law that creates opportunities that you know that creates negotiation through which women kind of bargain for better lives so the state almost feels compelled to intervene or like make its voice heard when it comes to divorce and democracy and uh, you know everything in between uh, and you you think that part of the reason is um, perhaps the way the indian state is structured perhaps uh, patriarchy perhaps you know a bit of everything but is it fair to assume that uh, the the way the indian state or say the judicial system has responded has been fairly ambivalent a lot of our listeners are also not indians and we got a bunch of questions around it so would would help to get some context yeah i would love to talk about ambivalence actually so i do think um, ambiguity in law is something so characteristic of family law debates and the earlier question that you asked about you know um, what is the judicial or the state response and you know um, is it trying to i mean is it fair to you know say that this is only coming from a space of patriarchy and you know the thing is that i think gender is a very convenient entry point for the state to intervene so yeah. every time you want to bring in a almost policy, an empathetic one yeah that, almost you know, an, i mean at least it's it's structured like an empathetic one so yeah. even if it's a uh, uniform civil code it will the state will make it seem that this is on behest of women if it's about increasing punishment for crimes against women it will be it's essentially increasing a lot of surveillance we don't know how much it's actually helping you know keeping women safe but all legal interventions tend to kind of piggyback on uh, rights of women and that becomes an important thing for me as a historian to look at because while there are moments that women would knock on the doors of court they would you know sort of you know uh, organize themselves before parliament and seek a law equally there are as many moments in which they would oppose a certain law because that law means surveillance that law means intervening in personal lives and so on and so forth so actually i think women have a very love hate relationship with the law there are times when you know law would come to their benefit and there are times when they are basically organizing to to you know have a law repealed like we saw in the case of 377 which is the law that criminalizes homosexuality in india so you know law is both a good and a bad thing and that is why there is ambivalence around it and that is why the state's responses however strange and ambivalent they are i think it is an important conversation the legal conversation is an important one for me as a historian because uh, you know of course there are too many instances that i encounter that you know um I, i'll give you i'll give you one example for instance um at one point uh, 
you know, there are multiple legal spaces, as we know, you know, law is being debated in parliament, it's being debated in courts, it's being fought out even in non-state institutions, right? So at one point, uh, I was doing my field research in a Darul Qaza, which is uh, an Islamic court. Now, these courts are not statutorily recognized, they're not really legal spaces, but people do go to them for, you know, sorting out family disputes. So let's treat them, let's say, as a counseling center, right? And uh, I was doing my fieldwork here and, you know, I was speaking to some of the people who were participants in this, you know, marriage dispute that was taking place. And uh, one of the participants was this lawyer who was trained in constitutional law, but she was assisting women in a, in a Dawil Kaza. So we, I asked her, you know, I mean, do you know enough about Islamic law, for instance, to be arguing here? And then she said something very interesting. She said that, you know, we are not here to argue on the merits of the debates of Islamic law. I'm just here to support my client because when we stand in a Darul Kaza, it provokes more reasonable fatwas from the Qazi even, because they see a lawyer mm. and in the presence of that lawyer, an alternate legal remedy becomes available. So they don't have to speak, they don't have to say anything. It will be like a regular dispute, but they know that, you know, if the Qazi says something that they deem as, you know, unfair or unreasonable to the woman, they can say that, look, this will not stand in court. So, you know, you might as well you know, temper your decision. And it works both ways, you know. When triple talaq was deba being debated in court, it's not like it was only taking place, it's not like it was a legal debate. It was only when, I remember I attended the six-day hearing, and at one point, it was Mr. Arif Muhammad Khan, uh, you know, who, who walked in, and he basically explained to the court how triple talaq was a problem within Islam. So it's not like constitutional arguments are making their way into religious forums. Religious arguments are also making their, their way, and they historically have, into state forums. So in one sense, what the Indian judicial system and what, you know, Indian even parliamentary system, all legal spaces are so closely informing one another that it becomes a place where modern religion is being written in courts. The courts are basically deciding what, you know, uh, ideals of Islam are or what essentials of Hinduism are. And at the same time, it is in Darul Qazas that constitutional values, the, you know, the Anti-Dowry Act, the, you know, uh, the 498A, the section that, you know, protects women against cruelty and violence. All of these laws are featuring in Nyaypeets, in uh, Darul Qazas, in all of these sort of religious non-state forums. So to, to some extent, I think, you know, uh, this negotiation between various parties is not happening only on a religious turf or on a legal turf. It's all very mixed. It's all very ambiguous. And it ultimately generates more options, I think, for women, because, um, you know, there were cases we encountered where women would, you know, a man would say triple talaq and a woman is so tired of, you know, like hearing her husband say it all the time that she said, look, now you've said it, I'm going to go to the Kazi and have it declared by him that we are now officially divorced, hmm. right? So the Kazi went and declared it and then she took it to court, had it formally declared before law and then negotiated her maintenance agreements through state legal system. So people are actually moving between all of these state and non-state forums, which would be very interesting, I think, to our international audience where, uh, where things are a lot more, you know, watertight in terms of, you know, what flows in, you know, in courts and what happens in non-state forums. In yeah. India, it's simply not the case. You know, we, yeah. we've got to acknowledge that our courts, our parliaments are dealing with contentious religious questions. Right. Um, Soumya, can you tell us a bit about politics uh, democracy and divorce 
And here, I don't want us to be finger pointing or this party did that or that person did that, but just paint the narrative of what are the different positions that different parties have taken uh, in history. You know, in your book and in an article you've written about uh, different politicians of different parties, it'll be helpful to connect the dots and see it as one thread. Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked me that. And, uh, you know, because it's important that, you know, what the book does is actually guide the reader through a chronology of what happened on the family law debate since independence. And uh, like you said, uh, personal law has been so central to, you know, uh, electoral politics. It's been, I mean, literally every political party has an opinion on it. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting that it was in the 1950s when this project was taken up predominantly by Nehru. He not just uh, wanted to amend the Hindu code bill, but this was immediately followed by his attempt to also codify Muslim personal law. Now, this is a fact not known to a lot of people, but this was one of my, you know, favorite arch archival finds that uh, Nehru actually was very, very committed to the idea of creating Muslim personal law code. He was in conversation with actually a Cambridge jurist, A.A.A. Uh, -A -A Fezi and uh, Asaf Ali Asghar Fezi, and the two of them basically decided to set up a commission, which is how I got interested in like law commissions and so on and so forth, because they set up this commission in 1960s and 1961 to be fair, and um, this was. Uh, they, they started to, you know, talk about codifying Muslim personal law. But um, then there was a meeting in 1962, which took place in, at Zakir Hussain's place, who was the vice president then. And after that meeting, this was an overnight meeting, which is very well recorded in the National Archives. Overnight, this committee was kind of shut down. So what I'm trying to say through this example is it's actually not so much political parties or one actor that determines it. It is a bunch of people. Sometimes it could be down to an individual who chooses to have a certain, you know, opinion on things and that becomes the most significant opinion that informs the personal law debate. So this is what was happening in the 1960s where, you know, uh, Muslim personal law codification was first attempted. Um, 1970s is when, you know, we have again Congress Indira Gandhi, who's not necessarily talking about a uniform civil code per se, but there is a huge conversation within the Muslim community about codification of Muslim personal law. And actually in the 1970s, this is a totally within the community conversation. This is not something being heralded by Hindu nationalist political party or anything. It's basically, you know, pro and anti-reform movements that start in Bombay, where, you know, a lot of women tend to, like, have started to organize around codification of Muslim personal law. And then the Muslim personal law board consolidates in 1970, 1972, and that becomes the more influential voice in the North, right? So it's a completely within religion, you know, conversation. It begins to get a little bit politicized post Shahabano because right. we have not you know, everyone would know what that is that so you, everybody you would know us. and that's why you know right. I'm, I'm not saying sort of anything new here but it just so no, happened not everyone would know not everyone of Ireland say in the US or New Zealand would not know what that means Okay, so, you know, basically the Shahbanu case kind of also coincides with the rise of the Hindu nationalist political party, which is the BJP, which consolidates in the 19, uh, in the early 1980s, in 1980 actually, and then they kind of are... Uh, 
collectively sort of supportive of the idea of uniform family law, which would replace uh, personal law, which would replace religious personal law. And their commitment to a uniform civil code is figured by this one case, the Shahbanu case, which for the benefit of our international audience, I will explain in just a couple of lines. Uh, Shahbanu was this, you know, a woman in her late 70s. She was divorced by her husband, who was a who was also a lawyer, and uh, he refused to maintain her. He refused to give her maintenance uh, beyond three months. And he said, as per Muslim personal law, I'm only obligated to maintain my wife for three months after divorce. And Chabano actually took her husband to court and said that, you know, under Indian law, you know, I'm kind of falling into destitution. So this man needs to maintain me. And um, the, the lower court actually held that, yes, he should give her maintenance, but her husband appealed the case, and then it went to the high court. The high court again confirmed that Shahbana should get maintenance, but the high court strangely reduced the amount of maintenance she was due. Um, he challenged it again, this husband, he was a very persistent man. Um, and he, this, the case went to court and the Supreme Court also then finally confirmed that Shahbana should be given maintenance. And it also observed that, you know, this is all becoming too confusing. There should be a uniform law that governs all religions. Now, it's interesting that Shahbana's husband's argument and, you know, this is important because this was the last case he ever fought. It was a pretty terrible argument. He made the argument that, you know, an honorable Muslim would be obligated to maintain his wife, but I never claimed that I was an honorable man. So as an ordinary Muslim, I'm not obligated to maintain my wife. That was his argument. And that is why it didn't hold before court. But it was, you know, it triggered this huge debate where, you know, it kind of managed to cast the whole of Muslim personal law as very obscurantist. But this was not actually the case. Muslim women had been litigating for years under the, you know, the Indian section, which was section 125 of the Indian Penal Code, and they had been getting them. Right. And then subsequent to this, the Indian National Congress enacted this law that protected Muslim personal law. And it, uh, under Rajiv Gandhi, who was the prime minister then, kind of came up with this Muslim Women's Protection of Rights on Divorce Act. And this act kind of says that uh, under Muslim personal law, women can get maintenance this way and it lists a whole bunch of provisions but nowhere does it say that the general provision will not apply to Muslims right so Muslim women actually have multiple remedies now they can not just go under the constitutional remedy of 125 they can also use the 1986 act which was at that point in time deemed to be a very conservative act but subsequently and this is what my book is really about subsequently in 2001 the supreme court actually gave it a very liberal interpretation so when this act was challenged before Supreme Court for being obscurantist and for like sort of taking away remedies from Muslim women, um, the Supreme Court gave it a fresh interpretation and said, actually, no, this is not what the act is saying. What the act says is that Muslim women should be given maintenance for life, but the provision should be made within three months. So if the whole argument was that Muslim women are only maintained for three months after their divorce, the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the case. The provision for maintenance has to be made between the first three months, but they will get maintenance for life after that, right? So in one sense, there was a lot of ambiguity, a lot of confusion, and, uh, you know, around, you know, what the court means, what the act really intended. Uh, in particular, if, you know, we have time for this example, the court says that the word mata, which loosely translates from Arabic to English as maintenance, they said that it's not just translating to maintenance, it translates to provision for maintenance. The moment you call it a provision for maintenance, it means that it's not a one-time affair. You know, It just has to be provisioned in the first three months, and then women can negotiate greater maintenance. 
So in a very strange convoluted way, the court gave a very creative interpretation to what could have been a conservative law. And this is what makes the Indian legal system when it comes to personal law extremely, you know, um, impermanent. You know, this law will get challenged, it will get a new meaning, women will negotiate like new rights through it, it will get a different meaning in a religious forum. And, uh, you know, I mean, going back to the political party question just briefly, it is at this moment when the Shahbano case is being debated that the Hindu nationalist political party sort of picks on this one case to say that, you know, this is a problem with Muslim personal law. Simultaneously, it links this idea with its campaign against the Babri Mosque. So Babri Mosque, without getting into the dispute per se, I just want to sort of, you know, I mean, because it's just a part of Indian political history now, sure. Babri Mosque was, uh, you know, the 16th century mosque, which the Hindu Nationalist Political Party claimed was built on, uh, on, on a historical Hindu temple, which was eventually torn down by fundamentalists in 1992. So just the linking of the question of family law with this temple mosque dispute kind of gave you know the whole idea of family law of very religious versus secularism color which was actually just meant to be a conversation about legal uniformity versus legal pluralism became about secularism became about constitutionalism became about rights of minorities and in this whole mess what you don't really look at is the fact that it's actually about rights of women right so just this clubbing of electoral agendas of a temple mosque dispute with a uniform civil code made, let's say, the left party within India, which was all for a religion-neutral code, actually move away from the idea of uniformity. So now you will not have your Communist Party of India, CPM, CPML, they will not argue any longer for a uniform civil code, which was not the case in the 70s, right? So actually, political positions in India have evolved in response to certain events. So um, they've evolved in response to, you know, how certain political parties have chosen to um, chosen to sort of pitch their electoral agendas. And I think that would, you know, I mean, that's the most clarity I can offer in this sense, because these are not very clear positions. People keep shifting their positions right. when it comes to uh, family law. But all of this to say is that it's a, it's a very messy conversation to have and a difficult conversation to have. Yeah. And uh, there's also a recent case that you referenced. What is Shraya Bano? Do you want to yes. tell us a bit about that and what, what the reader should learn from it? Yes, I would love to talk about that case because that was like my immediate prompt for uh, writing this book. And uh, the Shaira Banu case took place in, you know, 2017. And there was this woman, Shaira Banu, she was 27 years old and she had been in a violent, difficult marriage. And um, at one point, you know, I mean, not only was she harassed for dowry, which is a pretty common case in, uh, in India, unfortunately, she was also subjected to forced abortions and eventually her husband pronounced uh, oral instantaneous talaq and abandoned her when she was away at her parents' place and then he basically refused to maintain her subsequently and uh, she took her husband to court arguing that you know triple talaq is an unfair form of divorce because it's unilateral it's instantaneous it's basically a form of divorce where a muslim man can unilaterally just say the word talaq 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 and that amounts to a legal divorce that becomes a legal moment in itself um, now, having said that, this was her case at that point. Um, there is, you know, there has been a lot of conversation on this even pre-Shaira Banu. 
So in the Shaira Banu case, the court ends up deciding that, you know, uh, triple talaq is an invalid form of divorce, not only because it doesn't stand the test of constitution, not only because it's an arbitrary uh, form of divorce, which cannot therefore, you know, be a valid form under law. It also says that, you know, within Islam, within essential practices of Islam that the court recognizes, triple talaq is an inessential practice. So in effect, what the court does, it's, it leans on religious morality to actually forward a constitutional intention. So it kind of marries the idea of, uh, you know, religious morality rejecting triple talaq to constitutional morality also rejecting the idea of triple talaq. And this is something that the Indian courts are quite fond of doing. So they have done this in many, many, many cases across, you know, uh, you know, religions before. And this particular case became in like incredibly important because uh, our law commission that I was then a part of started to look at, you know, what Muslim personal law reform would look like at this point. And the government started to contemplate uh, a bill to actually criminalize the practice, which is when the trouble really begins, because now the court has already said, let's say that this form of divorce is invalid. And if a man pronounces it, then the marriage continues to subsist. He still has to maintain his wife. He still has to provide for his children. But the moment you criminalize the practice is when, you know, a different kind of litigation really begins, which is not, I'm not really sure if that benefits women. Because once you criminalize the practice, anyone can report this man for pronouncing divorce. There is a jail term attached to pronouncing this form of divorce. Once the man goes to jail, we don't know what maintenance and custody arrangements are going to look like. So it actually increases more litigiousness in society. So it's one thing to intervene and say that we are no longer recognizing this divorce. It's quite another thing to criminalize it. Maybe this wasn't even the original intention of Shaira Banu and the, you know, the women's groups that kind of supported her petition. Now, the Supreme Court of India is, you know, let me put it this way, it's a battleground for more than just Shaira Banu and her husband. It hmm. actually became about Shaira Banu's petition being supported by some of the really important uh, women's organizations in India, the Bebak Collective and the Bharatiya Muslim Mahila and Women, which is the Indian women's, uh, Muslim women's movement. These four organizations uh, sort of supported Shaira Banu's petition. Her husband's petition was supported by the All India Muslim Personal Law Board. So actually, it's not just, it's never ever about the couple. It's always about the kind of politics they bring with them. And uh, strangely enough, it was also the one of the major leaders uh, who was then a part of the Congress Party, Kapil Sibbal, who was arguing for uh, Shaira Banu's husband and the Muslim Muslim Law Board. And Shaira Banu was being supported by the state council. So actually, there are two different political parties that are kind of, so Supreme Court is basically a stage for more than just one battle, is what I'm trying to say. Two different political right, right. parties have their agendas being played out in court. We have men and women have their agendas. Religious versus social organizations are a part of, you know, this, this battle as well. So in that sense, it became actually a divorce, which became basically about democracy. Almost all democratic institutions were, you know, in conversation, in court, in that moment, when Chaira Banu's divorce was being debated. And that is what, you know, became a really important moment, you know, for me as well, because that that happened literally in my living memory. So I could document it. I could interview, you know, the petitioners themselves and the organizations that were working for her, uh, that were working for, you know, Shaira Banu's, you know, petitioner, petition and, you know, supporting it. So that became like a very interesting uh, you know, case to look at from a historical point of view. Right.
I, I ask this purely out of ignorance, but is the reverse ever true? That a man is asking a woman to support her and takes her to court and et cetera, et cetera. Has that happened in India? Do you study this? Um, so it's rare, but it could technically happen. And, um, you know, I, I do have to say that women also within Islam have a unilateral right to divorce. It's called khula. And it is, uh, I mean, it's unilateral. A woman can, I mean, basically a woman has to give up her alimony in order to get this, but it's not like she doesn't have access to this form of divorce. And um, it is not, under Hindu law, it is not... Uh, common and it's almost nearly impossible for a man to seek maintenance from his wife even though that should on principle be permitted courts rarely grant it so that's the other problem with law right i mean you would have a law which is seemingly neutral and seemingly you know applies to everyone the same but the judicial interpretation of it would almost um, you know for instance i remember there was this one case where a man had demanded maintenance from his wife and the court ended up saying something like oh aren't you ashamed that you know you're asking your your wife for maintenance and stuff like that so the courts can sometimes even in completely religion neutral matters end up bringing in a different kind of orthodoxy you know um, there was recently a case where the supreme court held that a woman seeking to live away from you know her husband and you know refusing to reside with her you know in-laws actually amounts to mental cruelty towards the husband so yeah. no law actually says it you know hindu marriage act doesn't say it no law really says it but this kind of orthodoxy can inform court decisions which is why you know one of the things i argue for in the book is actually the state is not really the state it's individuals manning it so you'll have you know for instance uh justice krishna Iyer, who was you know writing these great judgments in the 1970s, he single-handedly wrote so many judgments which are still beneficial to Muslim women back in the day, in like 1978, then 1980, and so about maintenance, about divorce, and so on and so forth. But similarly, you know, you have Justice Varma who wrote the Vishaka judgment, which was basically about protection of women against violence at the workplace. And, uh, you know, a bunch of basically individual judges, uh, you know, Justice Rumapal, she's Justice Leela said, individual judges have given us some incredible ideas and incredible jurisprudence. And at the same time, there are individuals who, you know, pushed us back and, you know, had very, very orthodox interpretations of seemingly very neutral laws. So it's not so much the content of law that matters, but, you know, the people who are writing it, the users and the makers of law, and the politics that, you know, that they generate. The politics right. that they yeah. I believe there's also something about the Mangal Sutra and the, uh, yes. the Madras High Court, I think, had some thoughts there. So, um, yeah, that's a very interesting case. So, it, you know, many, many years ago, it, it was actually a case where it was held that uh, the Mangal Sutra amounts to mental cruelty, but the divorce was not actually granted on this account. And similarly, you know, my initial reaction to this case was, you know, a complete outrage. But apparently, the more I read into the judgment, the judgment doesn't actually say that, you know, it amounts to, I mean, it doesn't hold the, the divorce petition as valid because it doesn't recognize not wearing of a Mangal Sutra as an act of cruelty. But it says a lot about, you know, the nature of arguments that are making it to our courts, right? It, it's only um, on a woman's body that you can play out symbols of marriage, right? You can take a woman to court for not wearing a Mangal Sutra. You can, you know, have uh, reservations about, you know, women not covering their head, women wearing a burqa. It's somehow always coming down to symbols, to a bindi or whatever 
visible symbols of marriage that women are meant to carry. So regardless of which way the court concluded, and in this way, Madras High Court has now issued a clarification saying that they didn't actually think that uh, Mangasutra is, you know, not wearing one amounts to cruelty. But the fact is that the nature of argumentation in Indian courts is still revolving around, you know, this kind of policing of women's bodies that, you know, just simply not wearing a piece of jewelry could, you know, uh, could really, you know, offend your husband to the degree that it justifies him seeking a divorce. Right. right. And uh, what also bothers me about this is because, you know, a, a lot of what I argue in my book is basically about how, you know, divorce is synonymous with, you know, democracy and democratic negotiation. But in a country like ours, very often women are more disadvantaged once the divorce takes place, which is why you have all of these women petitioning against simplified forms of divorce because they know that, you know, the state doesn't guarantee them adequate maintenance, even in the Hindu Marriages Act, where maintenance is guaranteed that the law is completely codified. Rarely do you find that women have been given adequate maintenance. Very often, you know, a bunch of uh, orders I read at the, you know, the Lucknow bench of the Allahabad High Court, they were constantly granting maintenance to children, but not to wives. So for some reason, this whole idea that, you know, uh, post-marriage, you need not maintain a wife is, you know, it's it's beyond legal remedy. It's just something that the court keeps doing. You know, it's something that, uh, you know, that women are disadvantaged by and no matter how many laws we create to protect them, it doesn't always translate. And that is where I recognize, you know, the limits of law. And that's why what you need is not just a law that's coming through court or parliament, but really, you know, the bottoms up movement where women are protesting, having a conversation about it. And, you know, the dharnas we do at, you know, uh, you know in, in, on India Gate and so on and so forth, that has value, that has tremendous meaning. And, um, you know, that, that, that takes me to one methodological point that I want to make about, you know, writing history books, like writing contemporary history books, uh, especially ones about uh, women's history and gender history. One thing that I very consciously try to do in the book is um, look at two ways of doing this. One way of doing women's history could be that we restore women to history. We look at an existing, you know, you know, existing narrative and then we try to fit in and figure out what women were doing there. You know, which is what I'm trying to do with the Hindu court bill. That, you know, these are the debates on Hindu court bill. These are the important voices of women. This way you're restoring women to a historical narrative. The other way of doing history could be to actually be writing women's history. And what I mean by that is not just looking at a certain event and look at what women were doing then, but actually write histories of events which were important to women. Right, which is what I'm trying to do for you know moments in 1970s and you know the present moment. But actually, it may not even be a you know a significant historical event that you know let's say you know uh, the majority recognizes. But it's important to women's history. So it's important for us as academics and writers who are you know writing on women's history to recognize this difference. That you know, mm. for instance, something like. Um, you know, creation of a contraceptive pill could have been far more significant to women than writing a whole history of industrialization and industrial, you know, revolution and figuring out what were women doing there, right? So actually, it's important for us to recognize moments that women think were important and write histories of these moments as moments which were really significant and, you know, narrative-defining moments. So that's one thing that methodologically I'm going to try and constantly keep doing because as historians, we are leaning so much on the written source. We are 
leaning so much on archives and produced knowledge that we are not really you know factoring in the fact that actually this knowledge is being produced by a bunch of men who were possibly you know recording all of this correspondence so the voices of the marginalized are very often not on record not on written record at least which is why it's important for us as contemporary historians to look at legal spaces with a more open mind to you know almost uh, lean towards anthropology here and uh, look at how women are negotiating without necessarily you know having stuff written out in print but what they're arguing in courts and what they're actually saying because translators clerks lawyers tend to be men so to really record women's history we've got to you know see how dynamic these legal spaces are and observe women you know in these spaces. You answered like, my next question as well. I was asking, like, you know, what do you really hope to accomplish from your work? What, why did you write this? And so, for just a concluding thought. But let me ask you the one question I ask a lot of our uh, uh, academics and scientists who we host in Network Capital: If you are wildly successful in your mission, in your pursuit, in your endeavor, um, what might the world look like? This is a thought experiment. Not will not hold you accountable. Oh, you said this, but that happened. Just play with me. Yes, yes. Give me a moment to think about this because I've never thought I would actually do something so significant that you know it would um, it would impact the world that way. But um, the world would look. I genuinely do think, and uh, this might come from you know a more you know radical feminist critique that you know if if women did rule the world, we would have. much lesser military expenditure we would possibly have uh, you know fewer wars fewer egos to please we would possibly have uh, better international relations in every sense of the word we would uh, possibly you know also not have uh, you know this is something that again something that came out of my research but now i'm trying to link it to real life experiences you know things like industrialization and progress that our countries are so proud of i wonder how many of these benefits really accrue to women so if it were if i were to think of this differently i mean if you uh, i mean if you walk into a construction site you know where industrialization is literally visible you will often find signs that say men at work and then you would find tons of women who are actually carrying all the load you know they are carrying tons of bricks and walking around so maybe if the benefits of technologies of industrialization which is like using a tractor using a uh, you know a uh, you know various kinds of equipments if that didn't accrue to just men industrialization would have looked very different maybe women would have manned all of these you know uh, all of this machinery and men would have actually been doing the hard labor right but actually we we never look at it that way because we think that industrialization has said is a good thing we made construction infrastructure all of that but the benefits of technology have only then accrued to men so maybe in my ideal world i would have a uh, you know just more women in places of power and i say this because you know i'm i'm at a strange uh, you know juncture even in my own uh, career at this point because like i mentioned i'm currently on maternity leave and as women we feel uh, constantly judged about you know what choices we are making in our careers i mean whether it's about um, taking too long a break taking too short a break spending you know too little time with our child spending too much time with our child so there is there is no real way to get it right so in my ideal world i would not be judging women for the choices they make but enabling those choices through maybe a better state protection for a better child care service a better you know state protection for or 
you know, for, for working women, for single mothers, for, uh, you know, I mean, the recent conversation on abortion rights, for instance. I mean, just women not having access to their own bodies. So, you know, it, it does make one wonder about, you know, maybe just having, in my ideal world, more women in positions of authority would actually give us a more equitable universe altogether. <laughs> Cheers to that. Uh, Soumya, it was such a pleasure speaking with you. I hope to host you back on Network Capital and meet you in Cambridge very soon. Yes, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for, you know, taking me on to this. <laughs>